So bear with me. I have decided to combine uh, a couple things that are going on with me right now. In January, Truth Academy uh, kicks off January 10th. Uh, Pastor Brian, that's a Tuesday night. <laughs> Pastor Brian is teaching the Tuesday night class. I will be teaching the Thursday night class. And so I've been doing some prep for that, uh, some reading, uh, note-taking, um, trying to lay out the classroom. So some of tonight will be part of my first night, January 12th, in the apologetics class. Some of my night of tonight that will probably maybe generate some questions you can have handled with Pastor Brian. So don't come and ask me what I said. Ask Pastor Brian what I said because he's teaching the theology uh, course on Tuesday nights. So what I've done is combined a little bit. We'll talk a little bit about worldviews. We'll talk about, about some differences and different worldviews. And then we'll talk about uh, the atonement, uh, which is one of the most unique aspects of Christianity. And um, so we're going to look at that. And I'm hoping that uh, as we look at the atonement, we're, we're given a new perspective or maybe a new appreciation or a renewed, I should say, renewed appreciation for the, uh, for the work that Christ did on the cross on our behalf. <clears throat> so that's what I'm hoping to accomplish. So the first thing I want to do, by the way, what time am I supposed to be off the stage? The hook comes out. I didn't know how to gauge my note-taking, so I'm old school here, so I've got just handwritten notes. And I have some extra stuff hidden away in case I gotta make something up. I have an hour. Oh, we'll see how that goes. You guys don't mind getting out of here early, do you? Okay. Let's open with a, a word of prayer real quick. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> thank you so much for this church for the staff there's so much love here lord and we've uh, my family's been accepted with open arms and we've been treated so wonderfully and lord this is a tremendous responsibility to uh, so i just ask lord that my words would convey your truth and that uh, maybe some hearts would be touched as we move uh, into december and we're looking forward to celebrating the birth of our Lord, uh, that our minds would be focused in that direction and, and just kind of see what the work of Christ did and why he actually came uh, to become a man. And so, Lord, just uh, bless this evening, Lord, and may my words reflect your truth. In Christ's name, amen. So I will be teaching that, that class in January, and it's, a, it's an introduction to apologetics. Um, so there will be a little bit, like I said, of that in here. And so what I want to do is kind of uh, get you thinking for a second what it means to hold a worldview. A worldview is sort of a network of beliefs that everybody has, whether they know it or not. Some people's network of beliefs are well thought out. Some people's aren't. The idea and the goal is to have a well-thought-out worldview and that our 
the things that we believe and hold are actually reflective of what we think we believe and that those beliefs in and of themselves don't contradict. We want, to, we want them to cohere. We want them to mesh. So for instance, somebody says they're a Christian, but then you hear them talking about karma or that they believe in reincarnation. That's not a coherent worldview because they're trying to hold two opposing philosophies at the same time. So the idea is for us to sort of uh, be aware of the fact that we have these underlying assumptions, we have these underlying presuppositions that manifest themselves in the way we conduct our lives, basically. And so, as Christians, our worldviews would most likely be very similar, especially when we're talking about core ideas, core issues, core doctrine, core theology. And uh, we may have some differences as we get further away from the core. For example, we all might not have the same idea or the same beliefs if we were talking about economics. If we were talking about, uh, should the government determine min a minimum wage? Are they the arbiters of, and the, and the right arbiters of determining the cost of goods and services and wages to be paid. We may have some differences on that. But what we want to do is, whatever that belief is, is to be able to walk it back and have an idea why we hold that. Not just because it sounds good, but because it reflects our deeper core beliefs. Now, one way, or a very simple way, to discover somebody's worldview is to ask them what they think of the big questions in life, the big issues. For example, what is their view of God? Do they believe there's a God, or do they believe there's not a God? Do they believe that God is personal or impersonal? Is that God simply a force, or does he work in history. So questions like that. What do they think of truth? Do they believe there's such thing as truth? Or do they think truth is an outdated idea? You know, we're, we're beginning to hear culturally that we're in a post-truth era, in fact. And you know, modernism, which was most of the 20th century, transitioned into post-modernism, which questioned the idea of truth, and now we've moved even further, and, and most of these ideas are happening in our universities. So if you have high school students on their way to college, let's get them prepared. Um, come and ask the pastoral staff. Come to the Truth Academy. Let's get them prepared for what they're gonna face uh, on college campuses. Um, does life have purpose? How do we know? What happens when we die? How did we get here? Does life have meaning? Those are the questions that will reveal a person's worldview. Does that make sense? Any heads? Yeah, that makes sense. So, what I want to do is give you a very simple acronym 
And by the way, this will be part of the second semester because I'll be teaching a class on critical thinking, second semester. So I want to give you a very simple acronym that will kind of help you categorize and think about as you leave here your own worldview and does it line up scripturally, does it line up with family members or friends. And if you think of the word takes, T-A-K-E-S, very simple, you're not going to forget that word, takes. And I, I think John Frame, uh, who's a, a theologian, philosopher, is the one who came up with this, if I remember correctly. I want to make sure I uh, recognize that individual. But take stands for, the T is for, think of theology, and theology would be the questions about God. Is there a God? Is there not? What kind of God is he? The second one, the A, would be anthropology. That's our view of man. What is man? Is he simply material? Is he material and immaterial? Is he dual or tri-natured? Uh, does man have a purpose? What is man's chief end? Those are some questions that would be, fall under that heading. The K would be for knowledge. So knowledge would be what can we know? How do we know that we can know it? Is, uh, is, uh, is there a thing such as truth or is there not truth? So that has to do with knowledge. And uh, in philosophy class, it's under the heading of epistemology, which is how we know the things that we know. And then the E intakes is ethics. What does it mean to live a good life? Are there morals? Are they objective or are they subjective? Am I beholden to them? So that would fall under ethics. What does it mean to live a good life? Things like that. And then the last one in takes, the S, is salvation. And I don't mean specifically what you or I would immediately think of as salvation. You or I would immediately think, well, to be saved, you must be born again or something like that. I'm talking about, for all worldviews in general, what, what do they mean if, uh, you know, what would a Hindu consider salvation? What is their ultimate goal? So, like, for a Hindu who is a, who is a pantheist, who believes in a myriads of, of gods, they see life uh, as reincarnation, as this uh, birth, death, rebirth, uh, karma has an effect, and the, the ultimate goal is to get out of that cycle. And um, so that, that's Hinduism. Like uh, Buddhism would be something similar, although they don't necessarily hold uh, to a god. So for Buddhism, salvation would be to follow the eightfold path and follow the four noble truths and for them too also it's to escape suffering so life is all about suffering and so if you see a, a buddhist their their whole idea is to deny and reject that there is such a thing as suffering that's an illusion um, for let's see for uh for islam the five pillars of faith that would be uh, their take on uh, salvation in their worldview for an atheist, well, an atheist 
they would say that life has no purpose, that man is only material, and that when you die, that's it. You're, it's your, your worm food. So that would be their answer to that. So I want to leave you with that, thinking about worldviews, and then I want to transition that, that S, that salvation, and now we're going to talk about salvation, a biblical view of salvation. And uh, as we sang, as Pastor Chris, by the way, I love those, uh, I love the songs, I love the, you know, Christmas coming up, the Christmas carols, um, which, by the way, I thought, you know, I was, t- I had, you can't believe the amount of uh, advice I got before tonight. What I should talk about, what I should teach on. Well, hey, Thanksgiving just ended. Maybe do a Thanksgiving message. Well, Christmas is coming up. Why not do a Christmas message? Why don't you talk about hope? Why don't you talk about some of the stuff you guys have had to answer on the radio? Um, so really, it's a, it's a mixture of all that. And so what I did when I mixed it, I came up with an Easter message, the atonement. (laughs) So we're talking about the atonement. Now before we delve into the atonement, there's one little matter that comes out of uh, philosophical discussions that goes sort of to the heart of what God, what is God really doing uh, through the atonement, and why is that so important? Why isn't there an easier way to uh, atone for the sins of God's people? And what this little uh, philosophical sort of dilemma deals with is the, the nature of God and from whence come these uh, standards And are these standards um, objective or are they subjective? Now, here's this dilemma. This dilemma goes back to about four centuries before Christ was born. It's called the Eurythro Dilemma. And this was a discussion that Socrates had with Eurythro or euthyphro. I've heard it pronounced both ways. Now, here is the dilemma, and here's why it's, and then I'll tie it into why it's actually important for us. So Socrates asked uh, euthyphro, is the pious, and by pious he meant good, is the good, okay, think about what is good, is the good loved by the gods because it's good or because it's pious? Or is it pious or is it pious because it's loved by the gods? Let me put it another way. And this happens to be a sort of a a debate that's gone on throughout the last 2,000 years, actually, in in discussions, because it gets at the heart of those who throw this dilemma think they're trying to undermine our conception of God. And here's here's how. Because the, the way it's worded now is, is something good and just because God wills it? So is something good and just simply because God 
wills it? Or does God will it because it's good and just? Now here's why that's a dilemma. Because you and I, and you, you probably haven't thought of this before, we don't want either answer. It's a false dilemma, and here's why. Because if we answer that it's the first one, is something good and just, just because God wills it, okay? That means that God is, can be arbitrary. That means he's not beholden to his own nature. And he can change the goalpost on us. So it's not just because God today says one thing is good and just, and tomorrow says one thing is good and just. This is why this is a dilemma. So we don't want to answer that something is good and just just because God wills it. What about the other one? Does God will something because it's good and just? We don't want that one either. Because that, what that says is that what is good and just is outside of God, and therefore there's a standard that transcends God. So you and I, as Christian theists, as followers of Christ, nothing, no, there's no objective standard outside of God. Because God is, is the only eternal, um, uncreated entity. So that which is good and just doesn't exist outside of God. So the answer is, is that that which is good and just flows from God's nature. It is who he is. So when we talk about his attributes, that he's holy, that he's just, that he's merciful, that he's loving. Those are wrapped up in what it means to say God. Now here's another little uh, nugget for you. If you have any uh, Islamic friends, they, they get stuck on this dilemma because their uh, conception of God, Allah, is capricious. He is this one here. Something is only good and just because he says so. That's why Allah can have mercy on whomever he wants. He can change his mind. That's why a, a, a follower uh, of Islam can never have security. They are always striving to make God happy. They live under a works righteousness system. So, you're going to have to get the tape to hear it all again and to go over it again. But I wanted to throw that at you. I wanted to whet your appetite, maybe to end up in Pastor Brian's class or my class. But that's an actual discussion that goes on, well, every semester in uh, philosophy of religion courses. And it was an actual discussion that went on even before Christ um, in, uh, in Greek society. So the answer is because God himself is holy, 
his attributes all tie together. That which is good and just is a reflection of his character. And that ties into the atonement because God, as the moral standard, it's his character and, and the fact that he is the moral lawgiver that atonement can, that he can determine what constitutes atoning for sin. Okay? I hope you have followed that. So God is the lawgiver. God is the law upholder. He is the judge and the jury. And everything flows from the fact that he is holy. And any infraction, any sin that, that uh, goes against his holiness is itself worthy of being uh, punished because of his justice. So, when we look at the atonement, we're talking about Christ and the fact that he died on the cross. It removes and resolves and dissolves the tension that exists between mercy and justice. There really is no conflict between mercy and justice because God's justice uh, demands punishment. Punishment is given and it's because of his mercy that he allowed that uh, punishment to be given to someone other than the one, us, who deserve it. So that's how all that ties together. Now, in Leviticus, Leviticus uh, chapter 17, verse 11, God says to Moses, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So here we have a picture of what God requires for atonement to be made. Now remember, atonement simply means um, that amends are made, that the offending party is now satisfied because he has been offended, and amends are made. That's what it means to make atonement. Atonement uh, in the Hebrew is to cover. So it's like a covering of our sins. Uh, the sacrificial system, how many uh, of us in here have you know, read the first five books of Scripture? I mean, from Exodus and through Leviticus and even Numbers, I mean, it's all about sacrifices. There are grain offerings, there are drink offerings, there are daily offerings, there are burnt offerings. There are offerings for sin. There are all kinds of offerings. So the sacrificial system just dominates their life. And in fact, we see all the way back in Genesis, the very first sacrifice made was the killing of an innocent animal or animals to provide the skins that were given to Adam and Eve when originally, at the recognition of their sin, the Bible says they uh, sewed fig leaves together. 
and God chastises them and says, who told you you were naked? And they were basically hiding from God. So God provides his own sacrifice to cover Adam and Eve by killing an animal and shedding its blood and giving those skins to them to wear as clothing. And then we even see uh, uh, in Genesis 20, 22, um, Abraham and Isaac up on the mount. And uh, Abraham is uh, obeying God. He's taking his son, up, Isaac, up to the mount. And uh, he's going to sacrifice him, and God stops him. And then God ends up providing a sacrifice once again for himself. So we're already getting a picture of God providing a sacrifice for himself as if man isn't good enough to provide a sacrifice. And as we'll see, he's not. So there's some different uh, types of sacrifices going on in the Old Testament. And I want to bring out a couple of themes that run through those. Now, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. That's the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. Yom Kippur is the day that God instituted, and, it was, and because it was a once-a-year a once sacrifice, it, it only got instituted once uh, the, the God's people, the Israelites, had provided the sort of the instruments. They had, pro, they, had, they had what was called the tabernacle. This preceded the temple. It was sort of a, uh, some people call it a tent. So it wasn't a, a solid structure building that couldn't be moved. So they had the tabernacle, which is where the priests would go. Then they had the Ark of the Covenant. Everybody's seen Indiana Jones. We know that uh, people are still looking for the Ark of the Covenant. If you turn on uh, like National Geographic or History Channel, you know, people think it's in North America. They think it's everywhere. Um, they're never going to find it. I believe the Ark of the Covenant, Covenant uh, according to Revelation, I think it's chapter 12, is, uh, in, will be uh, revealed in heaven. So I don't see them finding the Ark of the Covenant. But anyway, so they had these instruments. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence within the, the Ark, and it was basically a box, a pretty good-sized box. Um, God was very specific about what kind of wood it was made of, what size it was, how it was covered, covered with gold, um, the mercy seat, the angels on the mercy seat. And all of these are pictures, pictures of God's holiness, pictures of God's justice, uh, picture, pictures of God's presence, his actual presence. And so the Day of Atonement was instituted. Aaron was the priest. Moses told him, you can only do this once a year. Don't even think of going behind the veil to where the ark was into the Holy of Holies other than the Day of Atonement or you'll lose your life. His two sons, Aaron's two sons, lost their lives uh, because of disobedience, because of a... a, a a wrong sacrifice. Um, so here's what happens. Aaron is to shed the blood of a bull. He sprinkles the blood. It's for his own cleansing and his family's cleansing. So first the priest has to be cleansed. Then 
they're, uh, the shedding of blood of a goat. So the goat's blood is shed, and that's for the sin of the people. And the idea there is that <clears throat> uh, Aaron makes a, a propitiation. A propitiation is a satisfying of God's wrath. So because of sin, God is angry, a, a goat is slaughtered, the blood is sprinkled in the tabernacle, and it appeases God's anger. So it subsides the anger. So we have a picture of uh, what we call propitiation or an appeasement, okay? But then there was a second goat, and the second goat, and then Aaron would place his hands on the goat, sort of this picture of a, uh, imputing, of giving the sins of the people onto the goat. Now this goat wasn't slaughtered. This goat, uh, somebody was uh, assigned. This goat was given over and taken out to the wilderness and released alive. So we have the picture of the slaughtered uh, sacrifice goat as a appeasement of God's justice and holiness. And then we have a picture of the other goat who's taken far out into the desert and released as a removal of the sins of the people. So we have a covering that placates and appeases God's anger, and then we have a removal of the, of the sins, and we call that expiation. So we have propitiation, expiation, an appeasing and a removal. So those, those are two ideas on the Day of Atonement. Then we, we have something similar. You guys remember the Passover. The Passover took place prior to the Day of Atonement. It was a day to commemorate uh, the tenth and final plague exacted on the Egyptians and Pharaoh for not releasing uh, the, God's captive people who had cried out for God's mercy. Um, let me turn there real quick. Let me turn to Genesis chapter, Exodus chapter 12, I'm sorry. So in the, uh, in the Exodus, um, they were going to now, <clears throat> Moses and Aaron get together. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it. Uh, going down to verse 12, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Here, here's the picture I want. God says that your lamb shall be without blemish. You take a lamb, a, uh, a year old, for the whole congregation, you're to kill the lambs at twilight, and then you're to take that blood, and you place the blood over the doorpost and over the lentil of the home that you live in. That blood signifies a covering. So, if you know the story of the Ten Commandments, uh, um, if you saw it with Charlton Heston, I mean, who hasn't seen that? Some of you young folks probably haven't seen it. 
I was so enthralled with that movie when I was younger. It was like on every year, but it was like a five-hour movie or something. Anyways, the 10th the plague is where God is finally going to get the attention of Pharaoh, and he's going to release his people. And by doing so, God's going to kill the firstborn across the land. But for the Israelites to be protected, they took the blood of this unblemished lamb, put it across the doorway, on the posts, and across the top. And when God passed over the land from which, from which we get Passover, the Israelites were spared, the firstborn um, across um, the land was not killed, but the firstborn of the Egyptians was. So we have that picture also. So we have the picture on the Day of Atonement of those two themes of a covering and a removal, and then we have a picture of the Passover. And what's interesting is that Paul actually calls Christ our Passover, who has been sacrificed for us. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Here's another interesting uh, little bit of information. Think about Christ's death on the cross. Was it on the Day of Atonement, or was it at Passover? It was at Passover, was it not? It was, Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. He instituted the new covenant. We, we uh, commemorate that at the, ta- at the communion table. So Christ actually, his sacrifice is more in line and signifies what happened at Passover as a covering, but then it goes much deeper. In Romans 3.25, we read that Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. In 1 John 2, 2, a propitiation again for our sins and not only for ours, but for the whole world. So we're seeing that theme from the Old Testament carried over into the New Testament, a propitiation, a Passover, And then, finally, there is a a, a third additional theme that sort of ties it together, and it's here in which I want us to sort of uh, park our brains and really think about um, what it really means to say that you believe this. This third theme, and it comes from Isaiah chapter 53, is the idea of a suffering servant. So we have Jesus as our propitiation. We have him as one who removes our sin. We have him as one who covers. We have him also as the suffering servant. And has anybody here seen the movie The Passion? Tell me if that wasn't a graphic representation of our suffering servant. You know, I was going to go to Isaiah 53, but let me take you to Acts chapter 6. Here's an, a great little story of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. So this is Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south. 
So we're in the book of Acts. Uh, Jesus already died on the cross. He's already rose again. He's already ascended to heaven. The church is beginning to develop and spread throughout the Roman world. He says, uh, rise, go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a court official of Candace, who was the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. So this is a pretty important guy. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he, he was reading was this, and he's reading out of Isaiah chapter 53. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? Is it about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what prevents me from being baptized. So the eunuch needed somebody to help explain the fact that what he was reading, reading had been written seven to eight hundred years prior, and uh, this prophecy about our Lord Jesus as the suffering servant, he was like a sheep led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. So I want you to think about that. Our suffering servant who has existed eternally as the second person of the Godhead allowed himself to be humiliated and take on the sins of you and I suffer the punishment, suffer the humiliation, so as I think about that third theme, which is what really uh, you know, it, it, just, it, it just brought it all home for me when I was preparing for this. And I had been doing a little bit of um, sort of reading, studying on my own on the atonement. And a lot of times I like to just grab a topic and sort of uh, research it and go after it and look at it. And it was just a great reminder for me thinking about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, 
how those themes transfer over to the New Testament. Um, we have such a, w- a wonderful, uh, loving Lord. You know, I've been so blessed. I have family members sitting here that if uh, somebody told me a few years back that I would be in this position in front of fellow believers with family members in attendance, um, well, I wouldn't have believed it. And if, and if uh, well, you knew me at that time, you wouldn't believe it either. So I'm, I'm so grateful. Jesus is our substitute. He's our uh, suffering servant. He suffered for the sins of the world. He suffered for sins that he didn't commit. In the book of Hebrews, he's described as our great high priest. He's the great high priest who didn't need to make atonement for his own sins like Aaron did before he had made atonement for the sins of the people. He was without blemish. Uh, John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29, when he saw Jesus approaching, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. There's that picture. The Lamb of God who what? Who takes away the sins of the world. The unblemished Lamb. Our great high priest. He became sin on our behalf that we could be declared righteous. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and what? And live to righteousness. That living to righteousness, that's an eternal, that's an eternal life. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Him for me, him for you, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You know what else he did? He paid the ransom and he made reconciliation. The study of the atonement has so many facets to it. There are so many ideas. You can go so deep. You can unpack it and just be struck in new ways by studying the atonement. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He gave his life as a ransom. We all know what a ransom is. It's a price that's paid to free somebody else. It's the innocent for the uninnocent. In 1 Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a 
ransom for all. First Peter chapter 1 says that we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without spot or blemish. So our Lord is the satisfaction. He's the propitiation. He's the one who appeases the wrath of God. He's like that scapegoat who removes our sin far out into the desert. He's the suffering servant. He's the great high priest. He's the uh, living sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice. He's the only one in the universe who can be called just. He's perfectly just, the only one. And yet, he gave himself for us, the unjust. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And so that what we can be reconciled, that is the good news. That is the gospel, that we can be reconciled. I know I've thrown all kinds of terminology at you. I've thrown propitiation and expiation, uh, justification, sanctification, redemption, uh, ransom. But reconciliation is bringing together that which was disrupted. As a parent, uh, there's been times uh, throughout uh, my kids, I have five kids, they're all, all adults now, and uh, there's plenty of times where there needed to be reconciliation, and it's usually my fault. I would need to go and make an apology and reconcile that relationship. And that's the good news of the gospel. Why did Jesus come in all those sort of, uh, to fulfill all those little motifs and themes and coverings and propitiations and the suffering servant, it was to reconcile. And it goes back to what I was talking about earlier about God's character and his attributes, that they're unchanging, that he's holy, yet he's merciful and loving. He displays his grace, yet he expects justice. So Christ was punished, actually punished on our behalf so that we could be reconciled. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We were reconciled. How? Because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He reconciled us to himself by the peace of the blood of the cross. We've been reconciled to God through the cross. So we have been declared righteous. We haven't been declared righteous because of what we've done. We can only be declared righteous because the one who actually is righteous got suffered in our place and took upon himself uh, the punishment that we deserved. So friends, I want to... Uh, I'm not going to make any assumptions um, 
with all of us in here. I'm going to uh, go through a quick, uh, concise, uh, sort of uh, lay out some scriptures on how you can know that you would be saved. And so I'm, I'm taking right from scripture. We're gonna talk, it's going to talk about sin. So for example, in Romans 3.23, the Bible teaches that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. We all know that. We all have a conscience. We all get a sense of guilt or shame when we do something wrong. In uh, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. So not only have we all sinned, the wages of those sin is death. However, the gift of God, it continues, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin, the consequences of sin is death, but there is a gift, and it's eternal life. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love toward you and toward me, and that even though we were sinners, Christ died for us. So how can we have that sacrifice of the suffering servant applied to our lives? The same writer in chapter 10 of Romans says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's how you know. And let me tell you something. I have uh, put much time and study into... Uh, what it means to say that something is a historically reliable fact and what it is that historians do in the, uh, what is the, the task that a historian does and I will say this the, the probably most, the most well known skeptic this person is not a Christian in the world his name is Bart Ehrman, who teaches out of University of North Carolina. His name is Bart Ehrman. He's written a number of books. He grew up in a, a fundamentalist home and uh, turned away from the faith, and yet he's an ardent defender of the historicity of Christ. He, he talks about these... Uh, you know, you see these shows or you see things on the internet and they try to equate Jesus with mythology and things like that. And he completely discounts all of them as buffoons. He's a top-notch historian. He doesn't accept the supernatural, so he rejects the miracles of Jesus. But what he does accept as historical, Jesus lived when the Gospels say he lived and the writings of Paul. He says that Christ died on a Roman cross at the hands of the authorities. He admits that's historical. He also admits that his body was buried in a known location because in the Gospels it talks about Joseph of Arimathea. Um, a high-ranking official's name would have never been used in a first-century document unless it was actually accurate. 
So he admits those three things. He also admits that on the third day, the, wi- the women followers of Jesus discovered the tomb as empty. He's not admitting that Jesus rose from the dead bodily, but he admits that the women themselves discovered the tomb empty, that we can uh, believe that as a historical reality because the writers of the New Testament would have never attributed as eyewitness testimony women who, whose testimony was not credible in a first century court of law. So the fact that they w- were attributed as the ones that discovered the tomb is empty is very significant and therefore must be true. And then the last thing that he admits and that he doesn't have an answer for is that the disciples themselves experienced Jesus as risen. You get that? He doesn't admit that Jesus rose from the dead, but he can't discount the fact that the disciples themselves had an experience of Jesus risen from the dead. Otherwise, how do you account for the spread of the gospel? How do you account for a small group of followers who were scared to death of the Roman and Jewish authorities all of a sudden being emboldened enough to put their lives on the line and talk about a risen Jesus Christ? He doesn't know how to explain it. He would, he would fall in line with some of the uh, old stories about well, it was a hallucination, or um, perhaps the Romans uh, stole the body, or the Jewish authorities stole the body. But when he's really pressed on that point, he he doesn't think those are good answers. So for us, we know what the real answer is. The real answer is the best answer, and the best answer is the most credible answer, and the most credible answer is the answer that is attested to in Scripture. You don't get an explosive movement under Roman authority in a Jewish culture in the first century teaching a new teaching about a bodily risen Savior when there was no expectation at all for a bodily risen Savior in the Jewish mindset. For that to happen there's only one explanation for it, that it actually did happen. So friends, I want to invite you, if you have never had an opportunity to uh, ask the Lord into your life, to have that atoning work of Christ, that suffering he did, the taking upon himself, uh, the punishment for our sins, If you have never done that, if you've never put your trust in the Lord, we're going to pray right now, and I'll say a little prayer. And if that's something you'd like to do, um, you can just follow along yourselves with what I'm saying. And then, um, you know, you're welcome to come down if you have any questions. I'll hang out for a little bit. I'm sure Pastor Chris will hang out for a little bit, Pastor Brian perhaps. Um, So we'll be here. So thank you for your uh, attention. I hope it gave you some uh, new eyes to, to see um, 
what our Lord did for all of us. And as we approach Christmas, I think it's a, a great way to, we'll celebrate the birth, but let's know that Jesus didn't stay in the manger, that he grew and uh, took on that role um, that he willingly chose to do for you and I. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much um, for this opportunity to get together on this Wednesday night. <clears throat> Lord, there's so much going on in this world. There's so much pain. Uh, just me and my family are familiar with several situations uh, that have happened. Some have actually happened to families here at church. Some have happened with families that are close to our family. But Lord, there's so much pain out there right now. There's so much heartache. Um, things that are going on all across this world. But Lord, you continually uh, work in people's lives. We hear tremendous stories. The gospel is vibrant and spreading in Asia. The gospel is vibrant and spreading on the African continent. The gospel is vibrant and spreading in uh, the South American continent. And Lord, as it, as it seems that we are going the way of Europe and, and uh, becoming more secular, may we redouble our efforts <clears throat> to represent you, and may we uh, study and show ourselves approved as workmen. And Lord, may our worldviews uh, get much tighter and much cleaner, and may we be emboldened as uh, we seek to love you with all of our minds, our hearts, and our souls, and our strength. And Lord, if there's anybody here tonight that uh, doesn't know if they're saved, Lord, uh, would you touch their heart? And if that's you I'm talking about, um, you can do a simple prayer like this. Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your Son into the world. We know that he left eternity and that he came to be born as a man, uh, that he lived a sinless life, that he died specifically for me, that my sins could be forgiven. Um, I ask you, Lord, to come into my life. I admit that I need a Savior, and may you indwell me with your Holy Spirit and give me the strength to grow so that I may honor, uh, live a life pleasing life to you, Lord. And we thank you for that. Lord, be with these people um, that they may be safe as they drive home tonight and continue to bless this uh, small little body here in the city of Corona and that we'll continue to let our light shine. Uh, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.